Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. I am the boomer. I have no riz. So stupid. I am the boomer of this episode. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning, Vietnam. You know what that's from, right? I do. Uh, I watched it when I was a kid in school when a sub was in, in in the class. In school. So we had a substitute teacher one day, and... The teacher said, you know what, just make him watch Good Morning Vietnam and uh, write me like a half a page on how they feel about whatever. Anyway, I know where that's from. It was from the movie of... Good Morning Vietnam. Good Morning Early Vietnam. Robin Williams. They yeah. sent this um, funny man over to Vietnam to try to spark comedy back into the lives of uh, the soldiers. Like, hey, we know you're at war, but we sent your comedian. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. And then, as it always goes, he raises morale, but the morale is raised beyond the bar that the leaders want, so he gets ousted. It's kind of Dead Poet Society, only in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, when you put it that way, that's you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But, uh, yeah, good morning, everybody. Happy good to be morning. here. Happy to enjoy Dune Part 2 with you. We're on a bit of a time crunch this morning because I was late. But we will dive in. Slava, why don't you get us started on uh, chapters 13 to 22. Give us the old summary. Bringing up my notes here. So so in this section, we see Tufir Hawat, which is one of the lieutenants for Lado, intercept a note allegedly from Baron to Jessica. I didn't didn't get that, but that's how uh, what Hawat takes away from it. So Lado... Tells him, all right, watch Jessica. But he doesn't believe it to be Jessica at all. And he even tells Paul to say to tell his mother, when the time comes, I never suspected her. They go visit a spice mining operation. It's attacked by a sandworm. And it turns out that Leto has to save them because a Harkonnen spy has stolen the spacecraft that's supposed to take him out. So the way it works, you, when you're mining spice, everybody knows... Sooner or later, this worm's going to come by. So they have these spacecraft ready to rescue the miners, but it doesn't come. So Lado saves the people, and the person that's there to kind of oversee the transition from the Emperor's side is a guy named Dr. Kynes. Spoiler alert, he's very well known by the Fremen and is actually working with the Fremen to kind of fix the ecology of the world. But he's told by the Emperor to betray Lado and to just just watch. Don't do anything to give Lado any clues about what's going on, and make sure he fails. But inside his head, he's looking at Lado saving all the men, and he's like, "Oh wow, this, I like this Duke." So Jessica throws a party at this party. Doctor Kynes and other people are talking about how they can make Arcades a livable planet for everybody. How they can fix the ecosystem. 
Leto has to leave. He puts Paul in charge of talking to the guests, which I guess is a foreshadow that he, you know, Paul will be in charge soon. And after all this, there's a bit of a lull, and Leto, up at night, decides that he needs to go talk to Jessica because, hey, I don't want her thinking that I mistrust her. As he starts walking down the hallway towards her, he hears a commotion in the servant's quarter, goes to investigate, and is attacked by Dr. Yui, who poisons him. Well, not poisons him, gives him a sedative. And before Leto passes out, puts in a tooth with a bunch of poison in it, like gases poison, and tells him, hey, sorry, Duke, love you, gotta do this. When you see the Baron squeezing that tooth, everybody will die. I've saved Paul and Jessica. He gives him the clue that Paul and Jessica are saved. Jessica and Paul are kidnapped to be taken to, you know, to the desert to be thrown off and eaten by us. A worm, Lado's taken to the Baron. He does what he, you know, he was told by Yui to do, who's actually killed by Piter, which, and I want to get back to this because remember when we talked about Yui and how I kind of don't hate him that much? Yeah. But, so, but Yui is killed by Piter. Piter is killed by Lado when he presses on that tooth that has the gas in it. The Baron is able to escape, and somebody from the Emperor's house comes to check on Leto and the Baron, and the Baron seems to be caught in a tr- what he perceives as either a trap or a rock in a hard place or a, a bad place to be. And then we cut back to Paul and Jessica, and Paul has st- skipped like three levels of the Ben Gesserit. Something happens to him in this ordeal, which gives him more power and actually puts him ahead of Jessica, which kind of scares Jessica. And we are left with this little uh, tidbit is just it's revealed that Jessica is the daughter of the Baron because the Baron is a rapey, crazy person. So we don't know how she's the daughter because I don't think she even knew she was his daughter. But given the background of the Baron's uh, proclivities, it probably us, wasn't consensual. Give us the the... Because I think this is an interesting note. Give us the details on how we find that out again. Well, Paul, when they escape the Harkonnen, which they do using their Bene Gesserit powers, he sees himself in the future confronting the Baron and calling him grandfather, and that gives him the clues him into the fact that the Baron is actually Jessica's father. That that sounds familiar. Yeah, a bit of a turn. But one of these things that we see with this turn is that it was also foreshadowed a little bit where, and it's like a line here or there in some of the earlier chapters where it just kind of alludes to it. And I think that um, Frank Herbert is actually really great at foreshadowing, which is something that I didn't necessarily plan to bring up this episode, but I think we see it everywhere, even in giving the characters these premonitions. Now, granted, this is third-party omniscient, so we get to see every character and every perspective and every thought that they're having, which is nice. But, yeah, Frank Herbert does this great job of giving foreshadowing, but not too much. And on your first time reading this, you're not sure what is to be trusted and what isn't. Now, overall, this the narration can be trusted, for the most part, but yeah, foreshadowing, big fan of it, 
because it's done correctly. Now, I, I, I guess I want to pause because to validate the, or, or yeah, to validate the, the warranted belief that I have saying that it's done correctly, you've all seen, and I think I complained about this in, which book was I complaining about the exposition where they tell me everything up front? It was recent. Oh, I think it was in Unsold. We're talking about ex- like anime exposition. And how yeah. anime does exposition sometimes in an annoying fashion. Maybe it was just anime. Yeah, but anime, or but uh, but Unsold did it well, where it still required a character who was ignorant of what was going on or or didn't know about things, which is really how you how you do it, right? Because otherwise, it's hey Slava, do you remember when we learned two plus two? And then you call me an idiot, and then I go, no, you must have forgotten two plus two. Is five on Arrakis and da 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 whatever. Yeah, remember in Arrakis, it's the spice. The spice makes it four, and yeah. you know what spice is all about, right? You're addicted <laughs> to the spice, and then after you visit Arrakis, you can never leave. Yeah, especially if you see a Chris knife. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's it's that type of exposition and that type of foreshadowing that is done poorly. But when it's done well, it's you give the characters these premonitions. You give minor chats between folks of like well what if jessica was a threat or to be suspicious of or maybe she is related to someone where the line was something like benny jesserit women aren't given the knowledge of who their parents are and it's because sometimes they would do things like give uncles to sisters or whatever the like too close family relation to further breed the power that is the benny jesserit um lineage so, all that to say, the foreshadowing is good. Frank Herbert is good. What about you, Slava? How do you feel about the foreshadowing? Are you a fan? You don't like foreshadowing? You want everything to be a surprise? No, I'm, I'm not a big fan of surprises. I like them when they're done well, right? When it, cause some, something comes out of nowhere and you're like, oh, wow, that's an awesome twist. Just like Jessica being revealed to be the Baron's daughter. I think I agree with you. Well, I don't think I know. I do agree with you. Foreshadowing's done well by Herbert. It, there's some even what I would call reverse foreshadowing in the epigraphs and then actual foreshadowing in the in- inner dialogue of Leto and Paul's premonitions. They all kind of lead to lead the, the reader to eventually what was going to happen in Arrakis and Paul's, what did they call it? His horrible faith. Not, not faith, fate. His horrible fate. Terrible purpose. Terrible purpose. There it is. Terrible purpose. So, yeah, I like it. I think I think Herbert does it really well. And this section specifically, whether there was foreshadows or no foreshadows, this section really kept me engaged. It was so full of stuff. So much going on. And let's unpack that a little bit. So so we, we both know in our, what is this? This is episode 32. We know that we have different proclivities in what we really enjoy about literature. So give us a little behind the scenes Slava mental journey, mental, a little, um, what was that show where the kids take a school, magic school bus. Give us a magic school bus ride into Slava's mind. It doesn't have to be a play-by-play, but what was it that kept you engaged? Is it the questions? Is it the characters? Is it the, the world, the story? Like run us through the, the magic school bus ride here. I really liked Leto's inner dialogue, and I really liked how Jessica handled uh, Hawat's 
suspicion of her when uh, Idaho drunkenly reveals that they suspect her as a spy uh, because of that note. I like the way she handled herself and how she handled him. And in those moments where Leto is talking to Paul or talking to Hawat and having his internal dialogues and, you know, looking out kind of on the land and maybe even suspecting his death and even Yui's internal dialogue and Dr. Kynes, who you later realize is helping the Fremen or working on the Fremen, loves the Duke, likes the Duke at least, right? And has to just watch him fail and watch him die. Then you have Jessica, who's, you know, having her own existential crises later, which we talked about at the end of the recap, with her son excelling beyond her. And is, is he the the Messiah? I forget the actual word for it. And what's going to happen Moadib. to them? Yeah. What's going to happen to them? And then Paul, like, realizing, holy crap, I can't mourn for my father until I get some shit in order. And for a 15-year-old to have to realize that, right? And there's two things that really stood out to me in this section. Like in the chapter 14, the epigraph from Princess Urlan suggests that there's no more terrible moment of enlightenment than when a person finds out their father is a man with human flesh. Such a good line. And in the same vein where Jessica looks at Paul's eyes and she realizes that these are the eyes of someone who has left innocence behind. He's no longer a child. He, The way it's described is his eyes are the eyes of a child who's seen like death and destruction. So I think all that pulled together in this section, it's very heavy. It's, in the first section, you know, they're coming on the planet, there's foreshadowing, yeah, there's people trying to kill Paul, there's intrigue and mystery, and it does also play like a movie. You mentioned that before we started recording. All, all that is great. Here, dude... It's thick. Every sentence, every little section, every chapter has something interesting. It's not just, well, you know, this is Leto around the conference tables as generals and we get some exposition. But this section was very uh, full, right? There's a lot going on. Your, uh, your comment on being thick with fog, quick side quest here. This whole week with the state that I live in, we're, we're close to Canada. There have been wildfire smoke, and the air quality has been absolutely horrendous. It's been difficult to breathe, and I spent seven or $800 on multiple air purifiers that arrived the day after the smoke kind of dissipated, but, like, could not breathe this week. You said thick with, uh, thick, and I was like... Thick with Canadian smoke. Thick with Canadian wildfire smoke. Ugh. Well, it's come to you. A couple of weeks ago, it was in my state. And I went outside, so the office, we have a little courtyard where we can go outside. And I went outside and I sat in Smoker's Alley, as it's called. So there's that sort of the benches are, but it's also where like a little hub is for, for if you want to go have a smoke. I'm never bothered by cigarette smoke in the, in the slightest. So I'm just sitting there. <laughs> and then I'm like thinking, I'm like, what is going on? Is the cigarette smoke bothering me? I'm having a hard time like breathing. I'm like, oh, yeah. no, no, no. There's a... There's literally a, a smoke column of the Exodus proportion right in yeah. the middle of our uh, courtyard. Are the Egyptians behind it? Like, what is going on? Because, like, I could, it was thick. Then I'm like, right, yeah, the news this morning, I forgot, Canada's on fire. It's, uh, it's fascinating how much we don't think about air quality over here in the West. Because our air quality was, this week, it was like 260 or something, which is, like, pretty bad. 
But I didn't think anything of it. I was like, oh, it'll pass in a day or two, whatever. And then I had just like some weird, not quite a headache, but just like I couldn't tell if it was like a mental thing where I'm like, oh, well, because the air quality, I'm thinking that I'm not sitting very well. Because a lot of what took place was it felt like a a strong allergy week because I do have allergies. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, just like trouble breathing. Yeah, just the wildest thing. And I was like, this is what poor air and like other countries, you know, like China, like the air quality, not great in all the places. And just thinking about this is abnormal because we're so used to really, really reasonable air quality that's only usually tainted by pollen and and like the changing of the seasons but it was just it was just fascinating anyway back to your side quest over uh you 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 caused uh flashbacks flashbacks (laughs) from your one comment i was going to talk about another question that i was sparked with because i don't remember and it could just be that i'm got i have a lot going on in life right now why does baron harkonnen want to take Duke Leto down. Do we know that yet? Because I don't remember that coming up. We know that he wants to. We know that he's active in it. But I can't remember that question specifically being answered. Because it's not, and I don't think okay. it's barren. All right. Okay. It all goes back to the emperor. The emperor wants to take Leto out. Right. And I'm going to yeah. assume. I'm going to assume the emperor wants to take Leto out because Leto is out of all the small houses. He's the most powerful. And out of all the houses, he's the most influential and loved because despite having flaws, and this is why it's good writing, despite having some flaws, he's a noble man. He, like, like in, there's even notes I read this week that um, there's connections to a Greek, you know, mythology here too with Leto specifically and Paul, them being like heroes set up for a terrible faith to, fate. Wait, 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 to, wait, wait. Go down that side quest. I didn't know that. All right. Let me tell, tell me in the viewers. I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get, That's I'll interesting. Notes, but but let me let me finish this, and then I'll bring up my yeah, notes. Sure. The emperor wants Leto out for the reasons I just said, right? And the Baron is a key player in it, and he does have some animosity towards Leto. So that's what's going on. Because remember, when Leto's dead and Baron escapes, Emperor sends one of his men to check on what the hell's going on, and Baron's kind of like, ah, crap. They're gonna know that I effed up with Leto because everybody's in there is dead. Piter is dead, who's supposed to be the new the new duke. He was supposed to get the duchy. And that's evidence that it all comes from the emperor. And why he wants Leto out, I think, for what I said. Powerful, loved, small house, unmarried, has the potential to make allegiances with other houses that might be not so friendly to the emperor's agenda. At least that's my assessment of it. Now, on to the Greek stuff. I'm curious... Sometimes in really high-end music or, like, orchestral music, if you're listening to it with headphones on, you can actually hear the page flips of, like, musicians. Uh So just a quick side quest while you're flipping through your pages. To any of the listeners, I want to know if you could hear Slava flipping through the pages if you're listening to this on headphones or whatever. Just, like, can you hear it? Is our audio equipment so good that you can go and you hear the uh you hear the flipping of the pages. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. So Paul and Duke Leto's house name, Atreides, harkens back to ancient Greek mythology. The name Atreides is a form 
of the name Atreus, which recalls the ancient house of Atreus from classical Greece. Later novels in Dune series explore the connection between Atreides and their ancient forebears in great detail, making clear that Paul and Leto are indeed descended from the house of Atreus, Greek mythology. The house of Atreus includes the great heroes, such as Agamemnon and Melanus, Menelaus, Menelaus, excuse me, great warriors from Homer's Iliad and other Greek myths. The backdrop of these great heroes suggests that Leto and Paul have heroic and larger-than-life faiths ahead of them. But the house of Atreus' legacy also includes great tragedy. The gods crushed Tantalus, the first member of the house of Atreides, to internal temptation and damnation. Agamemnon was murdered by his wife and her lover. Ducleto's tragic fate continues the house of Atreus' cursed legacy. Leto is a noble figure, but seems to be aware that he will suffer a tragic end on Dune. Like in other Greek myths, Leto struggles against his fate, but is unable to overcome it. Paul becomes the warrior prophet of the Fremen and leads them to ultimate victory over their enemies. Spoiler alert. But he knows there will be a tragic consequence because of his success, including the violent religious war that will spread throughout the Imperium. So that, that's the Greek connection. A literal one, like in, in the sense in that world where Herbert connected them to actual Greek characters in Greek mythology and kind of the themes that Herbert found in Greek mythology. He fleshed them out in Dune yeah. and the rest of the books. Yeah. Interesting. I do like when authors, and, and I think I like it because I've done this, is they say nothing's new under the sun. And I've gone back to look for inspiration. We talked about this briefly with Lewis, too, where he was fascinated by space. And so he took themes of Greek gods and things and took those themes and applied it to his books. Uh, and the, the example that I used before was Prince Caspian was uh, Mars. So it's a nice jumping off point to go back to something that almost primitive seems insulting, but it, it's early humanity that agreed upon the narratives that we were going to share. And, and they, I think, Lou, uh, Tolkien as a philologist would say that they developed which I would agree with, but there are these key stories that have become canon throughout the ages between Rome and Greek mythology primarily, and we're from the West, so that's primarily what we're littered with, but I read this book once about African mythos and it's, and Japanese, and there's so many other mythoses in the world that we never get taught in school that are absolutely fascinating that holds some mm -hmm. of the same key themes and you mentioned Agamemnon and honestly I think it'd be fun this is just kind of a verbal note for us to go through one of these uh well a couple a couple of these ancient texts with like the Iliad and Homer because they're sort of where a lot of people tons of authors be that consciously or subconsciously have taken inspiration for parts of their books. So that's that's my little commentary on that. 
No, that's 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 good commentary. And you're right. There's nothing new under the sun, and that's why there's a shared human experience, right? You could be an ancient African or a modern American or a Chinese person from the first dynasty. Very, very different, very different worldviews. Probably won't understand each other. And, you know, if they're all put in a room and given a common language somehow to speak, probably wouldn't understand each other, you know, right away. But there'll still be commonalities in the human experience. Transcends times, cultures, all that stuff. And I think Greek mythology is proof of that. Although, of course, somebody can come back and say, well, it survived and we have kind of taken it into our culture and perpetuated those stories or rewrote those stories. Fine. I'll grant that. Whatever. doesn't take away from what I'm trying to say as the meta kind of uh, experience. I've taken a class, and this was a long time ago, in community college that was on, Ch- on Chinese history. And we read Chinese stories and Chinese uh, novels. And then a novel by an American, well, Chinese-American, writing about a family. It's, you know, in China during and before, during, and after the revolution. And I wasn't lost, right? It's not like I couldn't relate to anything. They were foreign to me in in some sense, let me put it this way, because they were talking about Chinese people in China before my dad was even alive, right? There's no reference point for me. But there were still stories about humans struggling, humans struggling to find love, to whether the the filial piety thing that was prevalent in uh, and still is in Chinese culture, where how do I honor my father and mother and bring honor to my family, but I also love the guy that nobody wants me to marry? That was one of the subplots in the book. I connected with that. I understood. Like, I, I could read that and enjoy it. So I think, to end my rant on this, what you were talking about, that's just proof of the collective human experience, the, the, what we share as a human race. But yes, African mythos, Greek mythos, we should incorporate that into uh, what we do and talk about in this uh, on this uh, quest of ours. I know that we do short stories here and there, but I can I can point you toward the book that I picked up of Mythologies of the World, and we could do some of those bonus episodes we've talked about where we pick a culture and just go through two or three because they're like Aesop's fables. And uh, speaking of which, we should read Aesop's fables here and there, or uh, and or Grim the Grim Fairy Tales as well. Mm-hmm. Love a good fairy oh, yeah. tale thing. Yep. Um, as an introduction to that, though, I think, and we're just kind of <laughs> sorry. We'll get back, uh, Slav. After this, can you bring us back to the book after my comment? Yes. Um, Lewis? No, I think Tolkien wrote a narrative. Not a narrative. Wow, it's a it's a day. Uh, Tolkien wrote an essay on fairy stories that I think would be interesting to discuss pre-going through these. Uh, and I think it would add to that. And we should we should, we should add that to the mix. Uh, finished. Okay, bring, bring me back. Pull me in. All right. Do you like the ocean? I, the ocean's terrifying. Yep. Funny you should say that. So one of the themes in the book is people in nature, right? Ecology. Ecology, if you remember from the first episode on for Dune, is the study of how animals, plants, and people interact within a system. And that system could be my backyard or planet Earth. So because of Frank Herbert's 
ecology background and how he wove that into this story. This chapter, at least to me, seems to uh, highlight that, right? How the relationship between the people and the systems, the the nature systems, let's call them, of um, Dune. The sandworms, like, is destructive, right? It has this awesome power. It arrives definitely affects how we uh, behave. Well, how we, how they, the, the humans on Dune behave, right? The The entire spice mining operation is even built to anticipate these things. So you know that these things are coming. As soon as you start making noise and that spice gathering contraption uh, starts sucking and the engine starts going, they start sucking the sand and sifting the spice, the thing is coming. And on the other hand, on the more positive end of, of this, we have the sandworms as a central figure of the Fremen religion, right? And uh, that's kind of demonstrated by um, some of the Kyan, uh, Dr. Kyan's uh, remarks as he observes Paul putting on a suit just like a Fremen would, which is the right way. And then some of the stuff he says, Paul, and the way he says it get, brings Kyan's back to you know, some prophecies that the Fremen has, that he recalls prophecies. He's like, oh my gosh, is this the guy, right? So my connection to the ocean question is, that's how humans, I think, view the ocean, right? There's, it's an awesome, crazy, scary place. And if we go to explore it, we definitely have to be aware of, you know, more than just the great whites or a giant squid, because you go too far down, and, you know, as we witnessed in the news, and well, not in the news when you're reading this, I mean, when you're listening to this, but recently, as we're recording, five men went down in a tin can uh, to see the Titanic and imploded because they didn't anticipate the safety measures or imp- include the safety. Forget the anticipate. They didn't even, they didn't do all the right things. Anyway, doesn't matter. That's a rant for another podcast. So they died. So like the, the, the world, the ocean, is a world unto itself, right? And when I was reading this, I'm like, there's this great unknown of the Dune planet, right? Like the same way when if you, if you find yourself just a couple of miles from coast and, you know, it gets a little choppy and you're looking and the horizon's just... There's nothing there, right? So you're standing on Arrakis, the dune planet, and all you see for miles is is sand and spice, right? So the in my brain, the, that's the the connections that were made, specifically like how how humans have to interact with something vast and unknown. That's why the ocean analogy came to me. You live with it, you live next to it, you get sustenance from it. Some people worship it. It's part of, you know, religion and religious expressions for some cultures, and yet it's vastly unknown. Just like for, for the people there. The Fremen might know something about it, but they haven't been able to conquer it. We haven't conquered the ocean. So it's interesting that you talk about vastness because I had a meeting this week with a friend of mine, and she's a UX, UI professor at a college here. And she is on the tenure track, and she is doing a piece on she's she's doing a research piece on awe and how awe um, I'm gonna screw this up 
Sorry, Lindsay. How awe affects the... Damn it. I literally had a like three-hour conversation with her about this. It's a meeting we've been trying to have for a while because I find doing research personally would be a really interesting way to get money in the world because it's it's like you're getting paid to learn. Collect data and then analyze it and assert your results. But she is looking at how UX, UI designers need to have a level of empathy to better create and do their job, their career, for the users. But empathy has been dropping because of technology. I'm like super summarizing here. And how if you can provoke and cause people to find awe that the fear and wonder and reverential respect that's tied together with a moment of awe could change people toward being more empathetic to the user. I'm absolutely slaughtering this, but we spoke about awe and part of awe is to have this moment of vastness that you're talking about. And this is going to get into something that I, well, this isn't going to get into. This is like one of the points I wanted to make is you don't understand vastness until you literally, I'm not just saying that, find yourself in a space where if something goes wrong, you're actually on your own. Whether that's a trip to space, whether that's a trip under the water, whether that's a trip on the water in the ocean where you're on a boat. And it's like, well, if the, if the engine dies, that's it. I'm out here. There's no coming back. Does it mean that you wouldn't get rescued because there's, there's coast guards and stuff? Like, no, it doesn't mean you wouldn't get rescued. But like, there's a, there's a feeling when you feel vastness. The same thing, the same feeling happens when you go to a different culture. When I went to India, it's like, there's no safety net. It's this the vastness, I think, is a feeling that you, you can have when you realize that there's no safety net. And people might be going, well, why does it matter if you go to a different culture and there's no safety net? It's like, well, I don't know the customs. I remember a story from years ago where a kid was in Singapore and he spit on the ground and they put him in prison. Right? Like other countries are allowed to run their countries however they want. If, if I don't know the culture and I don't know the rules, that doesn't matter. Their rules still exist and we could go down a tangent of this we won't but i don't have to agree with the rules i don't have to like the rules but the way that the natural law works is the way that the natural law works same thing with the spiritual law like spiritual law exists regardless of whether or not i a believe in it or b adhere to it and submit to it it exists it doesn't care about my feelings it doesn't care about any of that there are laws of the world that exist that don't that irrespective no that are they just don't care about your feelings um, they they will be administered to your life regardless of whether or not you want them to. Um, that said, yep. this is why if you go to a different culture where it's culture shock, you experience this vastness of there's no safety net here. If I accidentally break a law, I don't know how to get in touch with the U.S. consulate. I don't know how to get out of this mess. And it's this vastness of, you know, you're describing being in the middle of sand no technology, no weapons, no, not, you're just out there. And you better hope that there's some, some sort of being watching over you to help bring you back into the fold of society of some kind to pull you back from the vastness back down to a grounded state of being. That's a pretty good uh, segue into the next thing I, I want to talk about. And it's the epigraph from chapter 19. 
there's a quote from it that says, people need hard times and oppression to develop psychic muscles. Mm. And that's something that you've talked about numerous that times. Yeah, yeah. Numerous Go times in this episode about suffering, right? So it seems to suggest that suffering... Are you going to tell people that I'm like Paul? I'm a Ben and Jessica man? I thought that was our secret. I was going to say you're like Jessica, but I'll <laughs> give you Paul. I'm so, I, I don't mean to emasculate you on the podcast. No, I'm kidding. There's nothing wrong yes, with you being are a woman. Like, <laughs> woman. There's nothing women. wrong with being a woman. Good. Like, I don't know the single, words in English. Oh, my God. Every single... Uh, book you've given me to read that was your solely your suggestion Slava I think you'd like this I've liked the female characters vastly more than any of the male characters so nothing wrong with being Princess Jessica um, not a princess oh, yeah, pain and suffering all, all, all becoming all, psychic all stuff. becoming psychic yeah in this context it's be having the, the powers of the Benny Gesserit right which is in some form psychic powers and like one particular form it's literally psychic powers but you know the suggestion is that pain and suffering is what makes a person's mind stronger and it prepares him or her to face adversity better and this is something you've said numerous times and i agree but here it's you know literally pulled out of the book for you so maybe you can talk uh, talk about it um i'm going to quote some notes here and maybe that will get you going uh, so the suggestion proves accurate during Paul's and Jessica's captivity in the Thopter. A Thopter, okay. Yeah, uh, thopter. faced with extreme. Yeah, faced with extreme danger, Paul rises to the occasion using the voice to greater degree than he has previously ha- had to trick the guards. So the idea here is everything that Paul was trained to do, and everything that Paul has experienced, even though it was a, just a short bit of time, I think the the training helped, but the actual being in this horrible situation, uh, knowing that his father is dead, almost, you know, realizing that these guys might rape my mother in front of me, and getting the things inside of him, his mind, his soul, whatever, getting them to do what he needs to do, right? Talk about that a little bit. Well, as someone who... so. Suffering is a, hmm. I, I think I'm having an epiphany. I think suffering is something I'm passionate about. Question mark. I, I'm just going to, I, I, I'm going to run with this. I'm, I'm sure you guys have experienced this before where you're about to say something and then you go, do I really, and maybe this is just me, but do I really believe the statement I'm about to say? And I think I do. I, I think that I am passionate about suffering because I think it's a part of the natural law. I think it's partly because entropy, right? I, and uh, I, I think that I've talked about this briefly before, but the state of the world is in a state of entropy. And entropy, yeah, we had a, we had a, what book were we discussing where we were talking about entropy? Uh, Blade and, Runner? And you, was it Blade Runner? Do Android? Yeah, because the kibble. Android dream electric sheep. Yep. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, just a reminder in case you haven't listened to that episode, entropy is the the decline into disorder. It's the 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 breaking down from order to disorder. Um, I I was much more colloquial and and articulate when I said it last time, but it's the idea that everything is constantly in a state of decline like the kibble, where 
your body after the age of 25, I think, there's a point where your body's no longer the 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 refreshing that your cells are going through is being overtaken by the decline at which your cells are going through, which is why we don't live forever. So your physical body is always in decline for the most part. Your natural state of your world is regularly in decline because there's so many outside variables coming at you here and there from your relationships to your job to your living situation to whatever, even if you're a billionaire. Like, the world is in such a state of entropy where everything is degrading. Relationships, and that's material and immaterial. And that's your mind, too, which is why they say that you should refresh your mind with wisdom and knowledge and continuing to be sharp, which, and this is just a little quip for me, but which is why hedonism and nihilism are actually deeply detrimental to you as a being, physical and spiritual and moral because you're just choosing to embrace that which is entropy. So, back to my point. I think that I'm passionate about suffering because it's a guarantee. There are a few things in life that are guaranteed. Suffering is one of them. There's, a, there's an old saying like, all that you have in life is death and taxes. I'm, I'm paraphrasing and I'm not doing it justice, but those are the two guarantees in life, death and taxes. Well, I'm adding one that's suffering. So, I'm passionate about suffering because it's something that we all have to go through, whether or not we want to. Your two-year-old suffers, your 90-year-old suffers that you know in your life. And I'm passionate about it because everyone has to go through their version of hell. And the degrees change, but when we embrace the fact that suffering is coming for us, that it's here, and that there there's new suffering around the corner, we have options. And some of those options are we can start preparing for the next level of suffering. And one of the ways that you do that, and, and these are people that we find inspirational, is choosing to do hard things when we don't have to. Running a mile, doing a marathon, lifting weights, forcing yourself to be educated so you get a promotion, choosing to serve at the local soup shop, embracing the fact that there are homeless people in front of you who can't afford food. And what do you do with that? How do you, how do you engage with the suffering before you when it's not your suffering? Things like that. So, yeah, I think I am passionate about suffering. And it's, it's, it's just interesting to, like, be experiencing an epiphany and having to talk about it at the same time because it's not necessarily fully articulate. But I, I think that it is the embrace of suffering, and I'm going to quote Viktor Frankl again, like I do. It's that we get to choose, and this is one of the beautiful things about being human. It's also one of the most terrible things because it, it's such a... a it is a divine level of power to be able to define suffering in our lives. I'm going to say that a second time. It is a divine level of power. It makes you a god in some sense that you get the opportunity to define the suffering in your life and what it's going to do for you. I'm going to say it a third time. Like I don't think that people understand. You get to define, you get to embrace by having free will in your life Regardless of what's going on, you get to choose what suffering means to you. That's huge. Like, I realize that I've deviated from Paul here, but um, I'm sure that you can bring us back here in a second. What you just said, what you repeated three times, the, the, the beauty of it is as you suffer and as you face hardships, it only strengthens that muscle, right? For, for these people, 
it's the psychic Bene Gesserit muscle. Right. But it's also other stuff. Like that's not solely the point that Herbert is making by putting these words in Irulan's mouth. As you suffer and as you face adversity and you do it correctly, and it, you're not going to do it correctly all the time, but as you do it correctly, like you have quoted Frankel, the next time you face adversity, you are better prepared. You are able to work through it in a much more mature way. And the next time something else comes along that is also suffering or hardships that's greater or different or bigger than what you just went through, you are still better prepared for it. I lift weights every morning and I do cardio every morning. I've been doing it for about five months and I've lost four inches from my belly. That's awesome. And I put on more more muscle mass. And I started, I started with a 50-pound kettlebell and everything that I do with it has gotten easier every day. So the same yeah. thing with suffering. If you do it well and you're you're able to face it daily and train your mind and your heart to face it much with maturity, after a while, yeah, this sucks. This is suffering, this is horrible, and we can list a litany of hypotheticals, but you're able to face it well. And one thing I'm going to throw in here and then I'll let you uh, land this plane is I was watching, I think, Billy Bob Thornton, and he said, I'm in a constant melancholy because Mm. of my brother's death. And I am okay with that because my brother deserves the sadness that I feel daily because he, first of all, he was my brother, but we were very, very close brothers. And he deserves the pain that I live with every day because just to go like, okay, I'm over it, doesn't give him the doesn't give him the deference that he de- deserves as my brother. So I'm sad every day because I don't have my brother. But how I live with that sadness, and how I choose to define it, to use Frankel's words, um, how, uh, how I choose to define it and how I choose to live with it, is what makes me, what gives me the power to go on. I think hard times, to quote Princess Irulan. Hard times and oppression develop muscles. I'll leave out the psychic part because we're not psychic, <laughs> but it develops uh, mental not. muscles. It develops emotional muscles, intellectual muscles. And so it's it's all, it's a very diverse kind of a, speaking of the ocean, right? The, all this stuff is so diverse and there's so many moving parts at once for this thing that we call the human experience. But at its core, it's how you deal with these things that, you know, either you survive or you, you lose yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I know we got to wrap up here. Um, you asked me to land the plane. I think that the state of society is has taught us that it's okay to not hustle. It's okay to be comfortable. It's okay to whatever. And I think that that is, no, that is a blatant lie because suffering is coming for you. It's going to look different than what it looks like for Slava. It's going to look different than what it looks like for me. But suffering is coming for you. And if you choose, if you want an easier life, and I use the word easier because life is hard in general, but if you want an easier life, then you have to choose to do hard things before suffering comes for you because then you're able to weather the storm of suffering easier. Yeah. But the suffering is not easy in general, but you can make it a little easier by embracing suffering before you have to by 
and and working out's just the easy example by forcing yourself to do really hard things and when you think you can you when you think you have to quit you keep pushing regardless that's the first part the second part to land this point is you have to start journaling out your suffering and putting meaning to it and go you know I really appreciated the time with my brother, like the example that you gave. Um, and how I'm going to deal with it is I'm going to live with this, you know, constant state of melancholy because he's worth it. And it doesn't mean that every day goes well, <clears throat> but it does need, it does mean you need reminders, which is why I don't mind harping on this over and over and over again. Truth is not something that you just memorize once and then you're good to go. It's a constant refresher that needs to happen. So I have talked about this a dozen times so far and I will talk about it a dozen more until I also pass into the void. Yeah, that's actually very poignant. Truth needs constant reminder. It needs to be constantly in your head. We're not hard drives. We don't get to just like, oh, hey, I got to go reference this um, file. Right. In seminary, the way you're taught not to make the Bible a textbook is outside of seminary, you you should be able to read the Bible in a more worshipful way and when you get into in the seminary class that's when it becomes a textbook so you dissect it you know mechanically and more detached by that i mean in life there is certain things that are just mechanical and you you have to do them because you have to do them like wipe your butt and eat in the morning and get enough sleep and drink water and hygiene and all that other stuff and then there's stuff that you need to do that is more Call it worshipful, more, more more spiritual things where you have to feed the brain and the heart in a way that 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 exercises a different muscle, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, if we're going to continue with that. And the second thing is human, humans are just fickle, and we constantly need re- a reminder of truth. And that's the truth. As always, we're glad that you joined us today. Tune in next time for Dune Part 3. Also... As I read sometime in the past episode, love the love the hate, love the comments. Uh, so let me know where I'm wrong. Let me know that I'm not funny. Let me know. Just engage. Just let me know. Let Slava know that he's funnier than I am. Uh, let us bicker it out. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, what books do you want us to read? So like, comment, subscribe, share with a friend. Even if you tell your friend, because I'll do this sometimes, is hey, listen to the last ten minutes of this episode. You don't need to listen to the whole thing. Most of it's garbage. But the end, like, it reminds me of something that we talked about last week, blah, blah, blah. So, anyway, thanks for tuning in for Dune Part 2. And uh, we will see you on the next one. Goodbye, good people. <laughs>